This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Kara ong Associate Director at JMU Civic. Surveys and news reports show many Americans are feeling anxiety, stress, and worry, among other emotions, about the upcoming elections. In this episode, we talk with Dr. Benjamin Blankenship, Assistant Professor of Psychology at JMU, about how and why we have emotional reactions to elections, and what individuals might do to cope with these election emotions. Enjoy the episode. Ben, I wonder if you can start by talking about how this election may be different from previous elections in terms of how people are reacting emotionally. And do you have a sense of which emotions might be more, by, which emotions may be most prominent, whether that is fear or anxiety, anger or worry? So um, first of all, thank you for having me to uh, talk about these issues. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of us are feeling a lot of emotions right now with the upcoming election. And uh, many of us would uh, call those emotions very unpleasant emotions. So things like fear and anxiety. Um, And I think a lot of us assume that those are necessarily bad things for us to feel. But I think it's important for us to recognize that emotions are protective because they help us learn things about our environment um, and make judgments of things uh, about things in our environment, such as uh, wanting to look out for danger or wanting to look out for things that may harm us. So I think small doses of things like anxiety and um, fear can be protective. But of course, um, it's what we do uh, as a result of those that can be problematic. So in terms of this election, uh, there's been some polling that's found that um, the majority of Democrats, the vast majority of Democrats actually are feeling very anxious and very frustrated about the upcoming election. Um, When you look at Republicans, uh, they're also feeling very anxious and uh, frustrated, a lot of the same emotions. But we also see that Republicans are also feeling significantly more excited about the election. And uh, they also are showing a great deal of interest in the election, um, as are Democrats. Um, But I think that this is likely a result of um, some of the most hardcore supporters on the right being driven by what we call positive partisanship. So those are positive feelings about a political candidate that leads one to vote. Um, Whereas on the left, a vast majority of Democrats seem to be driven by what we call negative partisanship. So those would be things like negative feelings about Donald Trump. So um, these negative feelings and this negative partisanship has been talked a lot about a lot in uh, scientific literature. It's been talked a lot by scholars and by journalists. And this brings up uh, by far what is probably the most salient emotion for the election, which is anger. So anger, we know, is very powerful. Um, It is an activating emotion. It allows us to um, know when something wrong has been done to us or may be done to us, and it drives us to action. So this action can look like things like political protest. Um, It can be negative. It can cause us to engage in arguments on social media or even uh, can cause us to volunteer for a political campaign. So um, in terms of all these emotions, which we might call the basic emotions, uh, anger, fear, um, anxiety, things like that, um, I think that it's less about feeling the emotion and it's more about the intensity of the emotions that we're feeling right now, um, if that's causing us to go to a negative place. 
and also in terms of how misplaced they might be. So are we acting out on them in ways that are not helpful? So that's something that um, I encourage people to think about as they're experiencing these different emotions. Um, in terms of other emotions that uh, have been especially prominent in this election and the last election, but have received uh, relatively little mainstream attention, uh, there are things that we as psychologists like to call epistemic emotions. So epistemic emotions are uh, emotions that are caused by our understanding or our misunderstanding of the world. So things like curiosity and surprise, those are emotions that are caused by us knowing or not knowing something. Uh, they can be very powerful and can cause us to want to uh, figure out information about something. They can cause us to be curious and want to learn more about the candidates. But on the other side of the epistemic emotions are emotions like confusion, disillusionment. Um, some of you who have taken German might have heard of Weltschmerz, uh, which is a fun German word uh, that basically means world weariness as a result of knowledge about uh, the world. So basically feeling a sense of uh, disconnection and a sense of uh, grief at the state of the world um, as a result of possibly you know, being too plugged in and knowing a lot about what's going on in the world. So these kind of epistemic emotions can be deeply problematic for democracies because they drive people to feel other emotions like apathy or hopelessness or a sense of uh, lost control. And these feelings can make, be really detrimental because they cause people to feel like their voices don't matter. It can cause them to uh, be less likely to do things like vote. So even though I think a lot of people are really focused on those basic emotions and finding, trying to find ways to cope with those, um, what I mostly worry about are things like uh, disillusionment and confusion, which can freeze people and cause them to be- um, You know, are any of these specific emotions likely to um, cause people to turn out in greater numbers um, or to stay at home as a result? And I, I think you, thank you, you started to answer this with the epistemic emotions, but I'm not sure if there's anything um, that you would want to add in terms of how these emotions might drive us to vote or to stay at home. Yeah, so um, I think, like I said, a lot of the epistemic emotions like disillusionment, confusion, uh, Welchmerz can make us feel uh, like we don't have power and make us less likely to want to turn out. Things like apathy or similarly will make people less likely to turn out and vote. Um, and there's a lot of reason why people might be feeling those. Um, for instance, if they were really excited about a particular candidate in the primary election and then that candidate didn't make it onto the general, people might feel disillusionment, might feel like their voice doesn't really matter. Um, so those kind of uh, emotions can make people less likely to vote. Um, on the other hand, emotions like anger are really powerful for uh, getting people to vote. Um, that's why a lot of political ads and a lot of political campaigns use anger um, in their messaging because it's an effective way to get their base uh, to go out and vote, to uh, volunteer, do all those things. Um, so I think that there's there's a reason why we see so much anger signaling and so much messaging around anger um, this, this election season and in many other election seasons because it's effective. I wonder if you could help us understand why, and you, you, you also started to answer this as well with why we're seeing so many ads regarding anger, but I wonder, you know, what else is happening, you know, with the national election that might generate or make salient these different kinds of emotions? 
So I think there are a lot of reasons why people feel emotional around elections. Um, people might feel a loss of control or a loss of sense of political self-efficacy, and this might make them feel anxious. Um, people can become deeply angry at things like voter suppression, political hypocrisy, um, people being rude during debates. Um, the fact that people are experiencing such strong emotions, I think, is actually a positive sign. It shows that people deeply care about the results of the election um, and are very invested in the outcome. Um, so I think that, as I said before, the issue really becomes about what people do with those emotions. Um, it's also important to remember that um, emotions are signals from our body and signals to our brain about things in our social world that may be affecting us. So emotions like anger are driven by our values and norms being violated. So it's really no surprise that people are angry and may feel um, you know, really enraged by some of the values and norms that we see being upended by people um, in our political context. Um, anxiety helps us anticipate and react to potential threats in our world. So it's no surprising that there's a lot of anxiety around the election. Um, people, for instance, may have felt a sense of loss of control and understanding after the 2016 election. Uh, many people were disappointed and shocked by the outcome of both that election and on uh, the other side of the 2018 midterm election. So um, these past results not only um, you know, induce anxiety just by themselves, but it creates this, uh, this circle where um, we see that people start to become primed and uh, it kind of becomes a behavioral loop where people start to associate elections with anxiety. And so then uh, the elections can have no other effect but to make us feel anxious. Um, in addition, things like Russian interference, voter suppression, and other things that are outside of uh, control of the everyday American can make people feel extremely anxious and out of control. Um, so all of these specifics around this particular election uh, can also make people feel these very strong emotions. Um, additionally, excuse me, uh, it's important to note that emotions are not only tied to threats to our values and our feelings of control, but they're also tied to our social identities. So it's understandable that many people who are socially marginalized in our society may feel a great deal of fear or anger at the thought of um, something like another uh, Trump term uh, because they might feel that things like LGBT rights or minority voting rights or immigrant safety are on the ballot. Um, members of majority groups have been shown to feel emotions like resentment when they're primed to think about things like the social and demographic changes that are happening in the US. So um, we see that more and more political parties are being aligned, not only in terms of um, ideology, but also in terms of social identities. So as we see social identities become more and more aligned with the political parties, we see that you know, these motions become even more powerful because not only are threats against these political parties um, seen as you know, a threat to your political agenda, but they can also be viewed as a threat to, you know, uh, other uh, core social identities, such as race, gender, socioeconomic status, and uh, sexual orientation. Um, so these things can make people feel even stronger emotions because they feel like these important parts of themselves are also under attack uh, by the other side of the political party.
Speaking of things beyond our control, um, I wonder if you can talk about how the the media complicate our emotions about the elections. Yeah, so I think the media can be um, an incredibly powerful force for uh, not only invoking emotions in people, but turning up the volume on those emotions. So they, they're incentivized to do this. Media operations make more money through things like advertising. So um, they're incentivized to make people want to have emotional reactions and then stay engaged with their programming. So um, it's important, I think, as consumers of media for us to evaluate the framing that the media we're consuming is providing. Um, is it making us feel certain emotions spike in a certain way? Um, if so, chances are that um, this media that we're consuming may be especially partisan. And this might be, um, be an effect of the emotional arguments and the information uh, that keeps you coming back to that media source. Um, of course, as we talked about before, there's also the issue of political campaigns. So we know that uh, political campaigns also try to use uh, ads to invoke emotions. On the one hand, you can have attack ads that are meant to make uh, partisans on your side feel motivated with emotions like anger. On the other hand, you can have attack ads that are meant to make the other side feel disillusioned or apathetic. So for instance, by pointing out things like hypocrisy or inconsistencies in the opponent's record, which might make uh, people on the other side throw up their hands and say, you know, they're both just as bad and then decide not to vote. So I think the media has a really big part to play in all these different things that we discussed uh, earlier. I wonder if you have any suggestions about what individuals can do to sort of balance being able to be informed and engaged with the elections while also trying to maintain some semblance of mental health, um, particularly in, in this election year when the outcome is really beyond the control of any one individual? Yeah, so um, this is definitely a tough one. Um, and before I get into some of the things that I've been thinking about, um, I think it's important for me to emphasize that I'm not a clinician and I don't have any clinical training. So I am a social scientist by training and uh, many of the recommendations that I uh, plan to talk about are informed by what I've read in the scientific literature um, and so I think it's important that if anyone watching this, um, you know, students, staff, faculty have any uh, concerns or any issues coming up in terms of mental health, that they reach out to a mental health professional um, to talk with them about um, any of those uh, symptoms or signs of distress that they might be experiencing. Um, and of course, people can also uh, look at the uh, National Institute for Mental Health's website or call them uh, at their phone number in order to get more resources that way too. So in terms of um, coping strategies that I think are helpful, um, as I said before, I think it's important to recognize that emotions are helpful. Uh, people should not try to turn them off, but instead people should try to engage in practices that allow them to sit with those emotions and, excuse me, reflect on what their mind might be trying to communicate to them. So if someone is feeling anxious, they might want to uh, do something like meditate or do yoga and think about where that anxiety is coming from. Um, if someone's feeling angry, they might wanna sit and reflect, why am I feeling angry at this person? Do I actually have these really strong negative feelings toward them or is, am I angry because I feel like my values are being violated by their beliefs? 
Um, so I think it's important to uh, for people to make connections between their emotions at a deeper level and then recognize where those signals are coming from in our environment. So that can help us not only be able to recognize when we're feeling our emotions and then maybe take steps to alleviate some, some things that might be triggering, but they can also help us recognize, you know, that emotions are a normal part of our everyday experience. And it's important for us to, uh, to recognize uh, what emotions are trying to communicate to us and to try to act in ways that answer um, those signals that are acknowledging those signals. So oftentimes when people feel intense emotions around the, an election, such as anger or anxiety, uh, people tend to fall on uh, potentially unhelpful coping mechanisms. So while it may be a good idea at the time to, for instance, play a drinking game uh, while watching the debate, uh, that might sound fun in the moment, uh, it's actually probably not the most helpful because you're creating a behavioral link between that anxiety that you might be feeling around the debate and a potentially unhelpful coping mechanism. So um, it can be important to recognize um, when we're doing those kinds of behaviors, trying to use negative uh, ways to cope with our emotions. Um, another uh, instance might be if someone feels angry about something that a political partisan has done, um, they might feel like it might be helpful to rant on Facebook and this can be tricky because on the one hand, uh, it can feel helpful to vent your feelings um, in a place like Facebook, but it's also not likely really addressing the actual source of the anxiety um, and what values you feel are being upended. So um, it's better really to uh, find other ways to cope with these, um, with these emotions. So if someone's feeling anxious, they might, uh, try to do something like make a plan for how they're going to vote and then execute on that plan if they're worried about the outcome of the election. Um, if they've already voted, they may want to help others make their plans. So anxiety is a response we have when we have unknowns in our environment. So by doing things that can help you feel a little bit less uncertain about the things that you can control, that can help uh, kind of cope with that anxiety. Um, if you're feeling angry at something that a candidate has done, maybe instead of you know, ranting on social media or doing something else that might be harmful, uh, you can sign up for a shift to phone bank for your favorite candidate that you do support. Um, you could sign up to do socially distanced canvassing. Um, if you're angry about things like election interference, you might sign up to be a poll worker on election day if you're uh, healthy and able to do that. Um, so there's a lot of ways that you can rechannel uh, those emotional signals into things that um, can be not only better coping mechanisms, but can be potentially um, helpful in terms of um, upending some of those negative feelings of disengagement and possibly putting feelings like empathy um, at bay. Thank you so much. Those were all just fabulous suggestions um, and really constructive ways for us to engage more meaningfully as we grapple with the range of emotions we might mm -hmm. feel in this in, in, in this moment. Um, you know, we we've already started talking. You've already started sharing um, a lot about. Um, the rise of negative partisanship. Um, we know that there are differences in terms of Republicans being more supportive, um, voting for their candidate, um, 
at least according to recent surveys and Democrats for uh, Democrats um, voting against a candidate rather than for their candidate, um, which we term negative partisanship. Um, more broadly, we've seen a rise um, over the last couple of decades um, as the parties have sorted, um, as he suggested, based on a range of demographics and even social identities now, um, that there's an increase in partisan animosity. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how individuals might understand the biases um, and address the prejudices that they form mm -hmm. about individuals who identify with opposing political parties and beliefs. I think that, uh, you know, the partisanship has been a huge area of research, um, especially since the 2016 election and even before that. So I can really only scratch the surface here on uh, kind of what the issues are that we do know about. Um, but as a psychologist, I think a lot about things like in-group and out-group effects uh, from uh, things that we know about social psychology. So for instance, we know that people um, nowadays are sorting themselves more and more into much more distinct left and right political uh, columns. Um, and this can be thought of as a group protection strategy. So um, the same psychological mechanisms that allowed our ancestors to make sure that we weren't being slaughtered by uh, members of other tribes or you know, people that we weren't familiar with, uh, these same mechanisms are malfunctioning in a way um, in our current society, making us feel that uh, there are fewer differences between members of the outgroup, so people who are of a different political party than you, um, and this can make us start to kind of essentialize um, the people on the other side of the issue. So we, rather than seeing the full breadth of possibilities for what it means to be a Democrat or what it means to be a Republican, uh, these kind of in-group, out-group effects um, from social psychology make us see kind of the worst version of the counterpartisan. So people on the left might start to see people on the right as, you know, neo-Nazi, pro-fascist, while people on the right might start to stereotype people on the left as, you know, anarcho-communists. So in reality, we know that this is not true and that there is really a lot of room in between these two uh, realities that are um, include the vast majority of Americans. So um, it's important to recognize that the primitive, more um, the older part of our brains uh, causes us to do this, and it's important for us to kind of think about ways that we can counteract that, um, which, you know, hope to talk about in a little bit. Um, so a lot of this process is driven by identity-based sorting as well, so not just in terms of political party, but in terms of social identities and how they align with political parties. So um, we oftentimes, you know, if you know someone's social economic status, their education, excuse me, their race and gender, et cetera, uh, more often than not, you can kind of guess what their political identity is going to be. And this was not always true. So we know that, um, you know, 20 years ago, for instance, uh, political parties were more merged and there was more crossover between them. So people start, did not associate these strongly held central social identities as much with their political partisanship. So because we see that these things are becoming more and more connected, uh, again, we see that, you know, these, this political sorting starts to become uh, driven not only by 
uh, political ideology, but also by these other shared identities. So I wonder, just following up, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more um, about how we can counter that uh, primitive, <laughs> that primitive brain um, and maybe that initial reaction we might want to have um, when we essentialize others. So um, this is really tricky and it's still an open question, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, so a lot of what I suggest, I'm about to suggest, I think is um, informed speculation. Um, I think that there are a lot of tools in the, like, in the social psychology tool belt that can help us make sense of these things and also help us think about possible ways to alleviate these differences. So um, in terms of thinking about things like um, implicit bias and uh, prejudice and discrimination, I have always appreciated the work by uh, Dr. Patricia Devine at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, she talks about implicit bias as uh, kind of like a bad habit that we fall into. So uh, we know that our brains are very efficient in making snap judgments about people. Um, it's a protective mechanism. It allows us to not expend unnecessary uh, cognitive resources on being able to you know, evaluate every single person individually, but instead uh, causes us to make generalizations about people based on uh, social categories like race and gender, and also in categories like political party. So um, since this is true about political parties as well, I think that a lot of the techniques that we use to try to combat things like racism and sexism, uh, things like that, can also be used to try to um, alleviate some of these um, some of these uh, political party uh, prejudices that we see. So for the individual, if they think about their thoughts in that way and think about uh, having these biased um, cognitions and perceptions of the other party as something that their brain is making them do as a way to save resources, they can actively try to fight against that and say, no, actually that person is not a, is not a Nazi or not an anarchist, or that person is not a, an, a you know, a, a, a communist, you know, people will need to recognize that, you know, there's humanity behind the person and that there's complexity behind the person and reminding ourselves this as we're engaging with people who are a different political party than us, or even, you know, different other social identities than us can help alleviate some of that anxiety that comes from, uh, you know, uh, from interacting with those people and also can help us not run to those snap judgments uh, that we might be tempted to make. Um, so I understand that this is easier said than done though, um, because uh, it's, you know, when you have things like, you know, at a political debate, one of the you know leaders is uh, not trying especially hard to you know throw out or politically uh, condemn uh, things like white supremacists. Um, it's easy for people to make these kind of step snap judgments, and it's easy for us to rely on our stereotypes and generalize to other members of that party. However, it's important to note that while we may condemn the leader for their actions. Um, that go against our values. It's important to acknowledge that not everyone that shares that side of the political spectrum and not everyone that necessarily votes for that person shares those exact same views. 
So it's important to recognize that there's some, um, you know, some differences between people of the opposite political party. Um, another tool from the social psychology toolbox that can be helpful is intergroup contact. So we know that when people from different social identity groups spend a significant amount of time together and work on a shared goal, this can improve social relations and make things like prejudice uh, less likely to occur. So it can be helpful, for instance, perhaps uh, for people who are members of the campus Democrats and the campus Republicans, maybe after the election when they're not busy, you know, trying to help their sides. Uh, but, you know, at another time, perhaps uh, working on a shared program or a shared activity together where they would have a shared goal that they both value. And doing things like this can help us humanize the other side and helps us blur the lines between the outgroup and the in-group, which as I talked about before is a lot of the reason why we see um, these changes occur. Um, in terms of structural recommendations, um, so th these other things are more interpersonal recommendations, things that people can do themselves in their interactions with others. Um, I think it's important that, um, you know, we recognize how much the splitting up of our society in terms of social identities plays, plays a big role. So as we talked about, many social identities have come to become closely mapped onto political identities. And so to the extent that we're racially segregated or we're educationally seg segregated, um, these things can map onto our political segregation as well, making it less likely that we're going to have conversations with each other, be neighbors, um, and things like that. So I think that, you know, this political segregation gets, you know, up into really big picture things when we uh, see other ways in which uh, we as a society, other ways that we as a society um, segregate ourselves. And I think that those are important to recognize as well. According to a recent survey, according to a recent survey by Pew Research Center, about 55% of U.S. social media users say they're worn out by political posts and discussions. Um, and Americans who use social media sites are, are also more likely today than in 2016 to describe the political discourse on social media platforms in negative terms. Um, we also see both Republicans and Democrats who use social media about equally likely about equally likely to describe disagreements as stressful or frustrating, um, or say that discussing politics with someone they disagree with reveals that they have less in common than they thought. I wonder if you can help us understand um, why we see. Uh, so much negative political discourse on social media and what we could do to improve our political discourse and engagement on, on social media. Sure. So um, before I get to the social media piece, I think it's important to recognize that uh, voter fatigue is uh, what we call when, you know, people feel disengaged, people feel tired, um, worn out, as you said, by elections. Um, voter fatigue is a real problem in the U.S. and has been increasingly becoming a, a, worrying, a worrying problem in other liberal democracies. So, for instance, uh, similar polls in the U.K. have found that uh, there are similar levels of fatigue around issues like Brexit and around their own elections. Um, voter fatigue is not only really unpleasant for us to experience, but it also um, contributes to some of these uh, problematic 
epistemic emotions that I was talking about before. So things like uh, disillusionment, apathy, uh, confusion, all those things are direct uh, predictors of people feeling fatigued around elections. So um, I think that this is a really important question and it's important to think about ways that we can um, alleviate some of this voter fatigue. So um, like any fatigue, it really comes down to duration and intensity. So as we know, um, elections have become even more and more high stakes uh, for the reasons we've already discussed. And um, this has resulted in us having to expel a lot more emotional and psychological energy in order to think about and act um, around elections. So a lot of things we discussed before are important con contributor to voter fatigue. Um, additionally, we know that American elections have become longer and longer. We're thinking about them for longer periods of time before they actually occur. So um, by having things like primaries and then, you know, long drawn out primaries and having long drawn out general elections, this has made us feel very exhausted. And then uh, when you look at other countries like Canada, for instance, where they are mandated to have much shorter elections, you see much lower levels of voter fatigue. Um, so I think that this is a problem that we can solve um, and hopefully try to address some of the other issues that are related. So for instance, when we know that in countries where voter fatigue is less common, we see higher turnout. And so if turnout is an important goal that we want to achieve in this country, um, we want to think about what things might be fatiguing our voters. Um, so that brings us into the social media piece. And I think, um, you know, in terms of social media, I think that all the things we talked about, you know, the drain of the emotions from these very important elections, the feelings of elections taking forever, uh, these things are only amplified by social media. So first, I think it's helpful uh, for people to take breaks from social media. So um, if you log yourself out of social media for a few days, um, it, you know, it's unlikely that anything will happen in the world that you would, that is really, truly, you know, earth changing that you wouldn't hear about from other, other means besides social media. So that can be an important step. Um, it's also important before logging into social media to ask yourself what your intention is. So are you hoping to learn more about the news of the day? If so, are there other less emotionally taxing ways to get these updates? Um, are you logging in to connect more with family and friends? And if so, maybe rather than scrolling through your, uh, through your feed, for instance, on Facebook, you might go directly to your family or friends pages or to group pages and uh, uh, social groups that you're a part of um, in order to directly engage those people if that's really what you're going on social media for. So uh, kind of going back to the mindfulness piece, thinking about why you feel these emotions and what is driving you to do your actions. I think that this can be an important thing with social media as well. Um, I think it's also a good idea to turn off notifications. Uh, notifications for social media are made by behavioral scientists to try to bring you back into their uh, site. If they create the notifications, you're spending more time on Facebook, Twitter, whatever it is and that means more ad revenue for them. So turning off notifications can be a huge help for preventing, you know, spending too much time on social media. And then uh, finally, I think that, you know, recognizing that uh, there are other more effective ways to engage people politically besides social media. So um, if you find yourself getting in a fight on social media, rather than having it out in public where you feel like you're participating in a debate yourself, 
uh, trying to win your case, uh, you know, have those one-on-one -on -one conversations with people offline, you know, either by Zoom, because, you know, we can't meet in person as much as we used to be able to, or, um, you know, telephone call, or even just directly over direct message rather than, um, you know, in this public forum, I think can be a huge benefit to people who are trying to kind of turn down the volume on the emotions on social media, which can then contribute to some of this, you know, fatigue that we're talking about. You mentioned, um, you know, some differences between the United States and other countries, and especially the longer and longer timelines of campaigns, um, having both primaries and general elections. You, you said that this was a problem we can solve. I wonder what you see as, you know, are those things like shortening the campaign um, or other, what are, the, what are the structural changes and what are barriers to those structural changes to prevent voter fatigue? Sure. Um, so again, this is something that I think there's a lot of really cool ideas being discussed right now about ways that we can change our democracy um, and change our elections to make them less taxing. Um, still get those important conversations out in the open, but not make us feel like the sense of dread every four years or every two years if you're that plugged in. Um, so Going back to election length, I think that it makes sense for us to have shorter elections. Um, not only would that make things better in terms of, you know, not having to take as much time uh, thinking about the elections, but also, you know, things like, um, I'm not an economist, so this is outside my realm of expertise, but I know, like, people have talked about elections being extremely expensive, and so one of the reasons they are so expensive is because of how long they take. So making them shorter can also put less of a financial burden on, you know, people who might be donating to political campaigns. And, you know, if any of you are like me and receive emails from political campaigns fairly regularly, you know, they're always asking for money. And so um, that's another way that that would help too. Um, in terms of other things I've seen out there, um, in terms of more structural uh, recommendations, um, things like uh, ranked choice voting, I think would be helpful, um, not only because um, it would allow people to have more options, but it would make some of this partisan animosity less, um, less high stakes. It wouldn't be as much of a, uh, a uh, uh, win-lose prospect for the different political parties. So for instance, if you're someone who's more right of center, um, but you don't necessarily agree with what the Republicans are doing right now. Um, if there was ranked choice voting options, you'd be able to, um, you know, vote for a candidate who you more strongly agree with without feeling like you're betraying, you know, people who share your values and share your core beliefs. Um, so ranked choice voting is something that I've seen uh, that people have uh, recommended as a way to kind of turn down the turn down the volume on the stakes of elections um, and in terms of making people um, feel less like it's a zero-sum game. Um, there are other things like uh, having more proportional representation, um, you know, changing the election laws so that, you know, uh, people, uh, the campaign finance laws so that, you know, it's more driven by individual donors rather than, you know, large, you know, donors from donations from corporations. So all these things are things that people have been talking about. Um, in terms of, you know, structural 
barriers to those changes. I mean, I think there's a lot that we can talk about in terms of things like filibuster um, and other things like that. But again, this is kind of outside my realm of expertise, but I do think that, you know, even getting away from like a more, uh, you know, thinking about policy in terms of increasing the effectiveness of our democracy, I think a lot of these changes would also be beneficial for us as, as citizens and as humans, you know, to make some of these things a little bit less tense and a little bit more, um, more efficient in terms of getting our political differences out there without, you know, making it this whole thing. Dr. Ben Blankenship, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a wonderful conversation and I so appreciate your time and your expertise. Of course, thank you so much for having me.